Kia ora. Welcome to this episode of the Windows on Dementia podcast. My name is Daniel Paul, and today we'll be talking about dementia-friendly design. An international report released late last year stated that dementia design is 30 years behind the physical disabilities movement. The World Alzheimer's Report 2020, released by Alzheimer's Disease International, calls on governments around the world to take action and include design solutions in their responses to dementia. Now, dementia is a disability, one that's going to become more of an issue for our communities and our government as our society ages. So how can we start putting dementia-friendly design principles into action? Here to talk to us today is Jack O'Neill, who is a lecturer of architecture at Unitech. Today, Jack and I are going to be chatting about how an architecture of care that prioritises people with dementia can support them not just to live, but to live as fulfilling a life as possible. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for talking to us today. Um, Before we get into things proper, I just want to set the scene a little bit. Uh, We asked Alzheimer's New Zealand's principal advisor, Lynetta Russell, to tell us a bit about why dementia design is so important. Well, Daniel, as we know, dementia is an umbrella term used to describe a group of symptoms that affect how our brains work. The symptoms each person experiences depends on the parts of the brain that are affected, most commonly, of course, memory, thinking, behaviour, personality and emotions are affected, but also impacted can be perception and mobility. Dementia is different for everyone. We all know the impact of a tranquil environment on our mood or how a noisy environment affects us. This impact is heightened for someone with dementia and can contribute to a worsening in their symptoms and ability to experience well-being. Good dementia design can enable people to live well in their own homes and communities for as long as possible. As part of their daily lives, people who have dementia use the same buildings, pavements and streets as everyone else. But because of the impact of dementia, not always with the same ability to negotiate what, to them, can be major obstacles and hazards. Uneven surfaces, for example, dangerous to many of us, are even more so for them because they might have reduced ability to detect the level change. People living with dementia require an internal and external environment that is safe and easy to move around in if they are to continue to pursue their way of life and make the most of their abilities. Done well, dementia design can reduce agitation, anxiety, conflict, confusion and depression, while improving orientation, pleasure, mobility and all activities of daily living. Okay, Jack, so we've heard from Lynetta about the issues around dementia design and why it's critical to factor it into architectural design. So tell us, what is dementia-friendly design and can you give us some examples, good and bad? I'd say that dementia-friendly design is design that facilitates a more fulfilling life for those living with dementia in New Zealand. We chose the term fulfillment as it transcends the basic human requirements of survival and safety. And it really encapsulates what people need, but also what people want in their life. Um, and, and really, when we look at dementia-friendly design, we're really from our perspective, hoping to achieve a sense of personhood, which is the denotion of personhood upon someone living with dementia. So people recognize those 
people as people. Um, we're hoping to achieve happiness where possible. Um, and we're hoping to achieve privacy and autonomy, which when paired together give you typically give you dignity. So we, we're sort of working with a matrix of five key components there. Um, the way we achieve this is through, I mean, there's a variety of architectural methods from large scale planning goals. So this might be the size of the care environment, um, how a residence relates to another residence, um, the creation of privacy within one's own quarters within that care environment. And this may sort of, this, this thinking kind of goes right down to the door handles we choose, the carpet color, the uh, way staff integrate with residences and how the architecture facilitates that. So really, dementia-friendly design is not something that is considered at the early stages or the late stages of a project. It's really got to be in the foundations. It's got to be from the start. Um, and it can really play into every aspect of a project. You, you used the words we in answering that question, Jack. Just how much of a thing is dementia-friendly design? Now, I ask that because, you know, we've got a rapidly growing number of people living with dementia in New Zealand, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. So how much of a conversation within the architectural world is dementia-friendly design? When I refer to we, uh, I'm just speaking about my own research along with the supervisors at Unitech Institute of Technology. And there's some ongoing discussion at the Unitech Architecture School in Auckland around how we facilitate for dementia and design. However, as an industry, it is not well spoken about and it is not, a, is not yet a pressing issue. Architecture as an industry is typically led by clients and clients pay the bills and pay for research. And so until we really see a drive from the client base and from the community, I think we won't see massive developments in dementia-friendly architecture. However, based on recent discussions, particularly with Alzheimer's New Zealand and being part of the conversations that are, that are had around this issue in New Zealand, I believe it's coming to the forefront. And... What we're starting to see is, at least within the universities, an interest in developing this education resource around dementia-friendly design and developing an understanding within students um, who will be the architects of tomorrow or, or the next five years, or the next 10 years, developing an empathy for people who live with dementia. And I think that empathy is where we start. Um, that then sort of feeds into learning more about it and developing a toolkit or a, or a skill set that allows them to effectively cater for those design requirements. Would you say, Jack, that dementia-friendly design is at a stage uh, within the architectural world that designing for physical disabilities was, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think physical disabilities are much more, you know, typically much more obvious and much clearer understood. I think there is a large misunderstanding on the implications of Alzheimer's and dementia within the New Zealand community. I think internationally, there's a lot more development on dementia-friendly design, and there's a lot more of a um, societal understanding of what that is and why it is required. I think I think there's sort of a, it's in its infancy in New Zealand, you might say. Um, and I think that's exactly right. I think it's comparative to where physical um, accessibility requirements were sort of 20 or 30 years ago. However, we are seeing some 
industries or some companies taking um, large steps forward. So if I'm correct, Westpac New Zealand has committed to making all of their branches dementia friendly. Um, this is, you know, some minor physical changes, but major in the way that they're also training staff to help cater for people with dementia and to recognize the signs of dementia. And so we're really starting to see this in more of those corporate institutions that they believe this is a priority. Yeah, Westpac is part of Alzheimer's New Zealand's dementia-friendly recognition program, which is gaining traction in the commercial world, I must say. But um, tell us, Jack, I mean, you're obviously doing your bit to facilitate a growing interest in dementia-friendly design. Where did your interest come from? How did, how did you get involved in this? Growing up, I was very close with my nana. My nana um, immigrated here from Ireland many years ago. And my nana was a nurse, and she suppose she contracted Alzheimer's disease quite early on in her life, and she spent a lot of time with us as that disease sort of took hold. And I guess I got a really clear firsthand experience of, of the disease and how it affects someone's life. And, and it was very unfortunate because of the life she'd had, she found she suffered a lot with the disease. Um, so I think there was, there was sort of an inherent familial interest um, probably from an early age. And then as I was getting closer to finishing my master's degree um, in architecture studies, my grandfather also um, contracted a form of dementia. And it was at this quite interesting time of I was, I was starting my thesis and I decided that I would do it on Alzheimer's and dementia in architecture. And so during the year that I worked on my thesis, I was also helping my family relocate my grandfather and make decisions around care environments and care plans. And so I got this really firsthand experience of the practical realities of, of the disease and, and living with it, um, and especially how you cater for it in an architectural environment. So that's where it stemmed from. Um, from there, I think, I really saw it as an issue that is not widely understood or widely served by people trying to improve the situation, at least in the design and architecture community and particularly within New Zealand. And I felt that this was sort of an opportunity to make a mark and, and do something bigger than myself. Well, I, I uh, certainly hope that your interest leads others to, to follow suit, Jack, and um, your familiar co connection with dementia. You're not alone in that. I mean, dementia affects probably nearly every Kiwi family at some point uh, and at some time. So um, it, is a, it is a major issue with which we have to grapple. But um, can you give us some idea of what's involved in making uh, a dementia-friendly design? What are the key factors? Sure. So as a quick summary of the overall research, really what we were aiming to focus on um, in the, the initial thesis was what architecture can affect. And I think before we go into any sort of details, one of the sort of confounding points is that, you know, a great building and, and great architecture and, and sort of accessible design um, is only really held up by great staffing and a well-run care environment, for example. So it, it sort of goes hand in hand with all those other um, issues that we've talked about. As an example, one of the key issues in designing for people living with dementia is something called site disturbance. And then what the research demonstrates is that many people who live with dementia suffer from site disturbance, which sort of any cluttering of space or um, a space with a lack of contrast between the floor and the walls 
um, spaces where there is almost what you'd say a bit of a visual blur between elements or parts of that room make it incredibly difficult for someone to navigate that space. And when we create a space that is hard to navigate, what we are essentially doing is promoting a fight or flight reflex within those people living with dementia. What our analysis of existing care environments and, and sort of relying on some of the research demonstrated is a lot of these existing care environments, as many people who listen to this podcast will know, have you know bright white walls, a glossy um, vinyl on the floor, a white ceiling, and it's all pretty bland looking. And I think you know if you do not suffer from dementia, it's you can interpret that and you can understand the junction between the floor and the walls, and you can see that that's just a white wall down the hallway. But as sight disturbance takes hold, we need more definition between these parts of the room. So what you'll often find in a well-designed care environment is a really distinct border between the floor and the wall. Now, in architecture, that's called a skirting board. Most people have them in their house. So one example of that would be to use a natural timber skirting around the entire environment. And what that will create is a clear line where the planes change, which makes it easier to understand and therefore lowers some of that reflexive response. Um, another way this can be implemented is the reduction of um, using shiny surfaces on the floor. What most research demonstrates is that those shiny surfaces look like wet surfaces, which inherently makes you walk slower and feel more cautious and take your time in that environment. So while they're great for cleaning and they're great for serviceability, they're incredibly poor to live with if you're suffering, suffering with dementia. So we want to sort of remove any shiny surfaces out of the environment. And again, something I've sort of spoken on before with Alzheimer's New Zealand is this idea of using a white wall. White is the kind of typical color used throughout every care environment. We have a conceptual understanding that white kind of looks clean and simple. What the research demonstrates with you know a plain white wall is that it's missing what's called a scale of complexity. So scales of complexity are what you would see with a forest and a tree. If you looked at a forest from one kilometer away, it has the same visual detail that uh, same visual detail as you would see looking at a tree from 10 centimeters away. It's the scale of complexity that no matter the distance, there is a visual interest, and that's incredibly stimulating for the eye. A white wall lacks the scale of complexity, and what that can also do is increase sight disturbance and increase um, adverse reflexive responses to that environment. So what we found in really um, strong examples of care environments or progressive examples of care environments, particularly in Europe, is that they were sort of moving more towards either different colors as a first step or moving more towards different materials. And so that might be moving towards timbers or um, rendered plasters, something where natural light falls and picks up grains. And this all stimulates the brain, which is incredibly beneficial for those living with dementia. It's it's not just care environments either that we're talking about, though, is it, Jack? It's, I mean, we, we've got to blend this kind of thinking into architectural design in general, don't we? Yeah, yeah, I, that's exactly right. I um, Sorry, no, when I use care environments, that was a term we sort of used to encompass every environment. But you're exactly right. It's not just your typical care home. It's also an individual's home. Um, a lot of the research demonstrated that 
if we can create methodologies for enabling someone to live in their home for much longer, um, the, the quality of life or the, the level of fulfillment they have in their life as they sort of learn to live with dementia um, is greatly increased. So we want to, if possible, delay that transition to an assisted care environment and keep people within their home environment supported by members of the community and other services for as long as possible. That's a good point, and it's one that Alzheimer's New Zealand advocates for strongly, that uh, if we can keep people in their homes, in their communities for longer, that's all to the good. Um, just just um, thinking a little bit about the future of dementia-friendly design, Jack, I mean, the numbers of people, numbers of Kiwis with dementia are expected to nearly triple in coming years. So, you know, this is going to be a major challenge for our health sector, uh, and not just for the health sector, but for our society as a whole. So in your view, what's the future for dementia-friendly design? It's an incredibly complex question. I think, I think leaning on our last discussion, or our last point about keeping people within their own environments, it would seem from the research that we've read and others would be much more informed on this, that keeping people in their homes for longer is also going to ease the reliance or burden on the healthcare system. So as we get this triple-fold increase, um, we're softening the blow on those intensive environments. To do this, we need to come up with strategies to alter and, um, and make good people's existing environments, to make it more suitable for them to live in so as people learn to live with dementia, they need to have a home that is suitable for that. And so one of the things that we're working on with Alzheimer's New Zealand is creating a toolkit to enable this so that people can make their own cost-effective decisions at home uh, to make it more suitable for them in their own way. So that is, I think, one part of the issue. And the next is what the care environment, the assisted care environment, is like to live in. Um, as I said at the start of the podcast, I think there is a lot of complexity around this in terms of staffing and funding. But if we just looked at the architecture, I think we could learn a lot from um, more progressive ideas of caring, as seen in, Den uh, in Denmark and the Netherlands. Um, but even within New Zealand, down Rotorua, the Whareauruha, that's a progressive care environment. Um, I think we could really learn from these places about how you might cater to a New Zealander living with dementia to improve the quality of life. There's a well-known care environment in the Netherlands. My Dutch isn't great, but De Hoogveek. Um, and De Hoogveek was an incredibly progressive care environment which pioneered a lot of the models of care that we now use in progressive environments within New Zealand. So notably, this care environment is built in a courtyard style and what it uses is the outer buildings to protect the residents within the courtyard. They can then allow individuals to wander freely within the care environment without worrying. What we then see is because there is not the same security need, that environment can be incredibly stimulating. So there's fountains and gardens, there's bridges, um, and there's little shops, which I think is actually a fantastic example. So there's a, there's a restaurant, there's a gym, um, and there's other shared facilities. And, and what they're trying to do is establish communities within the larger community. And I think what we're seeing here is 
they're allowing people to live their life admittedly within a smaller world but live their life in a way that they see fit and and they're allowing people to retain some serendipity and some idea of chance and um, some control and autonomy and privacy over their entire life so this is an incredibly effective care environment that's that's been praised the world over and what we're seeing is you know other models sort of propping up in new zealand that represent maybe more new zealand ways of life so Fare Aroha, which is down in uh, Rotorua, New Zealand, uh, was actually modelled around the Netherlands model, and they had consultation with the founders of the Netherlands model. Um, and they studied Rotorua, and they looked at the lifestyles familiar to individuals living in Rotorua, and they looked at the housing models familiar to individuals in Rotorua, and they really tried to bring that into their design of the care environment. Um, so I think it's great to see that model moving to New Zealand. And I think it's fantastic to see that it's being modeled in a local way. I think it's incredibly important that our care environments are specific to the individuals living within those communities, um, not just take an international or standardized example as most care environments do, providing a standard room um, with a standard care plan and a standard lifestyle. You talked earlier, Jack, about, I think you used the word fulfilling. That's exactly right i think really the, the key is fulfillment it's allowing people to still live their own lives um not deciding what those lives are for them i think my only concern and this is a wider architectural concern is that we are creating private gardens or enclaves for people living with dementia that are away from their sort of original or wider communities and what i think would be interesting to explore and a lot of, you know, there's some interesting research coming out of Japan, um, is the idea of more community integration and bringing people with dementia back into the community. And so what this might mean is smaller care environments, but much more of them and sort of housed within little satellite communities um, throughout the locality. So this may mean instead of having a 600 person care environment, um, you know, an hour's drive away, it may mean that there is a 30 person care environment 15 minutes down the road. And what we would like to do is allow individuals to retain their existing community connections, but also promote more community connection. I mean, recognition has to be made that people living with dementia are people and they are part of our community. And part of acknowledging this and accepting this and encouraging that. Um, engagement is to sort of think about how we might create connections between the wider community and the care environment so in japan we're seeing some great examples of childcare facilities having a relationship with the care environment and the kids coming to visit um you know and creating maybe even meaningful work within these care environments that can be contributed to the wider community so i think there's the next step which is how do we have a more encouraging discussion around this promote fulfilling life but also promote community engagement and community value well jack i can i can definitely tell that you're doing your bit to facilitate conversations like that and it's and it's great to hear and it's been great to get your insights too today into you know what constitutes dementia friendly design and why it's so important so jack thank you very much indeed for your time uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon 
Today we've been talking to Jack O'Neill, who is a lecturer of architecture at Unitech. Jack, thank you. Thank you for having me.